Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and to the wider community. In these podcasts, we'll be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioral and quick fix based to look more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You will also be able to access all the references mentioned here at the end of the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Joe Herbig, who will speak to us about the often conflicted area of parental divorce and separation and the impact on children. Joe is a postgraduate family therapist and senior family dispute resolution practitioner whose undergraduate qualifications are in social work and teaching. She has worked as a specialist child consultant as well as a team leader across a region of South Australia. Her previous experience was with the Children's Contact Service and with mandated clients in the Parenting Orders Program. Jo has trained in child inclusive practice with Professor Jennifer McIntosh and now supervises other practitioners in mediation and child inclusive practice. She has been a member of the National Steering and Clinical Committee for Child Inclusive Practice for the past 10 years, which organizes the delivery of national forums across the country. I have also had the great pleasure of working with Jo when we jointly presented a workshop on looking through the developmental lens at a child inclusive forum in Perth. Welcome Jo. Can you tell us something about your current work and what it involves and how you came to be working in this field? Hello, Ruth. Thank you for inviting me to be part of the Talking Child Development podcast today. Well, I first commenced working with separated families in 2002 as part of my fourth year studies of an honours degree in social work I managed to successfully orchestrate a work placement with Relationships Australia in Tasmania, where I was living at the time. I guess I had an interest in working with separated families, and I can only imagine that this sprung from a range of life experiences where I witnessed separation and divorce and also its impacts on children. My work initially involved the chaotic and most highly entrenched conflictual families who were involved with needing to utilise the children's contact service. It was a dual role that involved the organising of changeovers between parents who just simply could not come into contact at all. It also involved the overseeing of children who were having supervised visits with the parent they didn't live with. To this day, I realised that this work was a crucial training ground for the work that I still do. I then spent two years counselling and educating separated parents 
in the parenting orders program, which was somewhat difficult as all the clients were mandated, usually by a court order. So if you can imagine, Ruth, these clients really did not want to engage in the service at all. It was around 2003, following my graduation and after securing employment with Relationships Australia in Tasmania, that I registered a private practice named Focus on Children. I could see at that time that separated parents were struggling and very much needed a simpler pathway to develop conversations about their children and to develop written agreements, perhaps. Soon after that, the family law courts began undergoing a review and the entire system was being overhauled and there was a national inquiry taking place. I had the honour of being able to speak to this inquiry in 2004 in Tasmania and subsequently the, re the result of the inquiry was that there was definitely a large backlog of separated parents who were applying to the family court for orders and the, simp uh, the system simply just could not cope. So family relationship centres were rolled out across the country as a result of this inquiry. The first round was in 2006 and the second round in 2007. In 2008, I commenced working for the family relationship Centre in Tasmania, so just moving across um, to the Family Relationship Centre after it was rolled out, and that role was as specialist child consultant. So my private practice by that time had taken off, and I was involved with roundtable conferences with the Legal Aid Commission of Tasmania, seeing children and then reporting back to parents who were present with their lawyers at their legal aid conference. To this day, I still like to maintain my work as a child consultant alongside my work as a senior mediator while working with separated parents. So that sounds like very rich experience, Joe, and you know, absolutely fantastic. I was just wondering if we could just talk a little bit about the area of parental conflict in divorce and separation. Because as you mentioned yourself, I mean, you've worked with um, situations and people who are very um, intransigent, they're very stuck in their own positions and very sometimes quite hard to help. Um, the fact that fathers now come forward to want to have regular contact with their children is a good thing. But sometimes one has the impression that it becomes a kind of judgment of Solomon situation where the child may be forced to be divided up by the parents, you know, where, where the parents feel that they have rights as opposed to the child's needs. And I wonder how you manage that strain. Mm. Yes, Ruth, um, parental conflict in divorce and separation is definitely often emotionally fraught. I will say, however, that it is both fathers and mothers, as well as sometimes grandparents and other family members who come forward seeking time with children. Uh, I do understand what you are saying about the judgment of Solomon and how he, as king of Israel, needed to rule between two women, both claiming to be the mother of a child and suggesting that the child be cut in two to reveal the true feelings and relationship to the child. Certainly, I would like to think that the world and the separated family arena has traveled some distance since those times. Sadly, however, 
there are today some parents who do still enter the mediation world with the view that a child should be equally divided. In fact, some parents use the term 50-50. And as much as I really dislike this terminology, it does provide me with the opportunity to help reframe the terminology, perhaps even the thinking of the parents. This is very much where my family therapy training is paramount and it is here that the intricate weaving of questioning is absolutely crucial, along with the maintaining of empathy for the parents and other family members. Even more crucial, however, Ruth, is the upholding of the safety of all involved as well as the best interests of the children. It's a hard one, isn't it? And so I suppose following on from that, how would you then negotiate the tension between the rights of the parents and the needs of the child, where the parents, as you say, they talk about 50-50. And, and, you know, I think as clinicians, we, we've, we've all heard that. Um, how, do, how are you able to kind of put it to them that really it isn't about 50-50? Mm. You know, I'm thinking particularly about babies, very young children. Um, uh, how do you negotiate the, the, the challenge or the tension between the parents who feel they have rights and the needs of the child? Mm, that is a very good question, Ruth. And for most part, I do that by practicing this in total reverse. So what I mean by that is I'm concentrating on the rights of the child more than the needs of the parents. And I'm just reflecting on a case, just a bit of a sidestep here. I'm reflecting on a case whereby there was in fact a, a very young baby involved and to the credit of the parents, they were able to get into the space of the developmental needs of their child and share the routine of the child and even come alongside each other and experience that routine on a daily basis before things were able to progress. So it's here that my child inclusive practice knowledge, training and experience play a large role. It is there in that very moment with a parent that I'm able to draw on generic experiences from working with children who are struggling with parents who are so entrenched in their rights as a mother, father, or even grandparent. If the verbal discussions in mediations are struggling to achieve this, I will at times also illustrate with images on the whiteboard using real examples of children's feelings. Uh, when the tension is so high, the opportunity to bring the child into the room as a visual aid often speaks to the core of a parent's heart. Can I ask you how you do that? I mean, what sort of visual aid would you be using? Yeah, I think it, that brings me back to the term 50-50 that is often used, as I said, and that is a very good cue to use a visual aid and, and it stems back to the training I did with Professor, Professor Jen McIntosh. Uh, there was an example of a child, a six-year-old child, who was asked to draw, I guess, an example of how her parents saw her and instead of drawing her own face, she drew a clock face. So I use the clock face when parents mm -hmm. are talking about time. And I also use the dollar sign when parents are tempted to focus on the money side of things. On the dollar, the dollar sign? Yes. 
Yes, yes. That's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And how do they react to that? It, it's usually a light bulb moment, usually probably 95% of the time uh, because it does help to bring parents into that space of, oh, my goodness, you know, my, my children are not money and my children are not time and it's actually quality that they're looking for. Yes. Yeah. And you've spoken about a child inclusive assessment and I wonder what would what are the things you'd be looking for in a child inclusive assessment that would be different from any other kind of assessment you might be doing in um, working with uh, separated parents who may be in some sort of conflict. I just wonder what the sort of hallmarks are. What would you be, do you actually tell the parents from the outset that um, you'll be conducting a child inclusive assessment? Do they kind of know about that? Yes, they do, Ruth. Um, the child inclusive process relies on consent from both parents. So that's where it differs from the mainstream counselling sessions that children may have um, in another setting where perhaps one parent puts them forward. So child inclusive, I don't meet just, yeah, I don't meet many parents who don't truly love their children and want what's best for them. So if they're stuck in mediation, that consent comes fairly readily, not always, but fairly readily. So firstly, through the process of mediation, it needs to be established that both parents are consenting. And, um, yeah, it also needs to be established through the process of mediation that there would be some benefit to engaging in the child inclusive practice model as part of the parent's mediation outcomes. So, for example, if a parent is purely seeking the process to establish that little Johnny will tell you what, you know, who he wants to live with and not see the other parent at all, for example, then a decision may be made not to actually engage the child in the process and not do child inclusive practice because there is always a danger of it, um, I guess, doing harm rather than good and, and we wouldn't do that. So basically, if all the concerns are eliminated in these areas and a referral is made, then from the mediator to the child consultant, we, we can generally go ahead. There are a range of child-inclusive practice models across the country, but personally, I like to make contact with both parents on an individual level as a first step. So some things that need to be addressed are the focus and goals of the parent as well as their capacity to actually hear the feedback. From there, I see the child or children. It's a snapshot, Ruth, but a very powerful one. It never ceases to amaze me what comes from these sessions and more crucially, what comes from the mouth of babes, so to speak. So I operate with a toolbox and by this I mean a range of activities are up my sleeve. What one child likes to partake in, another may not, and it's always necessary to think on your feet and change it up at any given moment, depending on where the child takes you in a session. So the session will always start with a getting to know the child generally. It never involves asking a child about their preferences of living arrangements. We don't place pressure on children. We don't do that. So to put it quite frankly, the role of adults, it, it is the role of um, the parents as adults to make those decisions. 
At times, however, Ruth, children will bring things up and a range of activities are used in the sessions to elicit the feelings and the struggles of children. These can include a basic bear card approach. So the bear cards are well known in our industry. They have a range of expressions that children choose to help express their feelings. They can be quite powerful, but I like to also engage with some family sculpturing using small figures. And there are also in the toolbox a number of scaling activities associated to specific information, such as the impact that high conflict, conflict may be having on a child. So the material is then formulated with a fine tooth comb. And at times, um, there may be some information that's not able to be fed back to parents. Often the feedback session involves delivery of generic information to parents together. And sometimes there's a need to give some individual feedback to parents individually. Something um, as example might relate to just one parent in their household. And we need to be careful about the confidentiality around that as well. Yes, that's, thank you for explaining that. That's, that's really fascinating. I was just wondering, you know, when you said earlier that the parents love their children, and I think I would agree with that, but every now and then we do come across situations where the love that a parent may have for their child is kind of muddled up with the hate they have for the uh, other parent. Mm. and something gets uh, put onto the child, something gets, so the child ends up carrying a burden. And you, what do you do in a situation that where I've, I've come across this a few times where um, despite one's best efforts, the child, often for good reason, refuses to have contact with one of the parents, is absolutely mm -hmm. adamant. And, and when you look at the situation, you can see that uh, the way they're being treated is so awful that one has to somehow support what the child wants to do. I wonder, I mean, I imagine that, that would, those cases would not be cases for child-inclusive practice, or would I be wrong about that? Um, not necessarily not suitable for child-inclusive practice. And there was, I guess, many years ago, a, a, con a concept that, if there was family violence, for example, that you shouldn't do a child inclusive practice model. Um, generally, that couldn't be further from the truth. It still can be utilized in those situations. And, and just going back to the first part of your question, Ruth, what came to my mind was grief and loss and how parents can be working through their grief and loss at very, very different stages. Usually one is preparing to leave and has grieved already and the other one gets the news and then starts the grieving process. So this is another time where I like to do a visual on the whiteboard and my family therapy hat comes in handy in these situations. It, can, it more likely is that the child is experiencing the, the turmoil and the grief and the loss right the way through even though the parents are experiencing that at different times, the child is usually, um, you know, experiencing the, the entire feelings of both parents. So thank you, Ruth. It's, I really love that this question has come up and it's right here in these conversations that parents are able to begin to realise that no piece of paper 
whether it be a parenting agreement that is not legally binding or a legal consent order that is legally binding, this is where the parents actually have the opportunity in mediation and in child inclusive practice to better understand each other's thoughts and needs and more importantly, the developmental needs of their children because more often than not, they may not have paused long enough to just take a step back and think about that. Some parents are nicely attuned to the developmental and attachment needs of a younger child benefiting from a closer relationship, for example, with their mothers. And then later in life, perhaps the benefits of a father role and a positive male role model that is also crucial for a child's natural development needs. Other parents are not at all attuned to this and the concept is very new to them. Um, therefore, it's an opportunity in mediation to explore this. But sadly, however, not enough opportunities. And I think that's due to the process of mediation predominantly being designed to be a shorter path um, where there can perhaps only be one session. So the opposite. Is that, is that sorry. true? I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I hadn't realized it could only be one session. Uh, that seems very limited. It, it is limited um, and it's not a hard and fast rule. There, there is more opportunity um, I'm experiencing these days than perhaps in the early days when the model was first rolled out. Um, you know, we have to consider our funding body and there is some expectation that there is a time frame. However, there are opportunities in some cases to incorporate reviews into mediation. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity to encourage parents to open up a, that dialogue, just coming back to that, about the changing needs of their children is so paramount. And for the highly entrenched conflicts, sadly at times it's not possible. Um, however, mostly it is possible, especially when you're showing curiosity about a child's daily routine for example a child's interest in a sporting team alone can dictate this need for a change and for flexibility so what those kind of topics do is highlight the need for ongoing review and parents generally yes. are open to that it's just how that review takes place is mixed it might be through mediation it might be that they can manage it on their own eventually yes i mean i think that's a very important point because you talk about review and the fact that children grow and develop of course um outside of the parenting orders or um, whatever arrangements have been put in place so that the, the problem is that a parenting order is not a tablet of stone or it can be treated like a tablet of stone, which is not going to be helpful. And one of the things I've seen sometimes is that, um, well, I think at all times there's a need for a more flexible approach, mm. but children develop and grow and they have a need for the parent of the same and opposite sex as they grow and develop. And I, I was just thinking particularly, say, of a boy who lives mainly with his mother and then in adolescence wants to spend more time with his father, mm. which <clears throat> seems like a, a, a natural development in terms of finding a, a male identity. And I think there needs to be a space for this. But then sometimes the mother may feel that she's put all the hard work in, in terms of bringing up the boy, and that somehow now the boy, all he wants to do is go uh, and stay with his father. 
And uh, I think this is a tricky time, isn't it? Because people need to become aware of what is developmentally appropriate. What's the developmental task for the boy at this stage? And I, I wonder what your experience is in this area. Yeah, th there are a lot of examples and very different examples. What you've touched on is, is certainly one of those examples. Uh, equally as crucial and jointly for each parent is simply when a, a child reaches their teenage years and purely wants to be spending more time with friends rather than with either parent and that, that's yes. a really hard nut for parents to swallow uh, so yes there, there are different times different circumstances and it's always a case by case because no one family is the same as the next so there's no hard and fast rule but but certainly there are the developmental flavors and there are the normal lifespan flavors that do come into play yes Thank you. Yes, I, I would agree. I was just wondering, um, Joe, in a perfect world, is there anything you would want to change about the way in which we can help parents who struggle with an acrimonious separation? Mm. Is there anything we could do better? Yes, um, and we have touched on this, and I must say that I am always open to booking another session with parents because I'm a big believer that they do need time to explore these important decisions that they're making for their children. After all, there is only one opportunity and there is no going backwards. So I would have to say more space and time for sessions and definitely more opportunity to use to utilise a more family therapy approach rather than purely a mediation model, which is tightly funded to predominantly be short term. There are currently parenting courses available, but from my two decades of experience, Ruth, the majority of parents mostly don't choose to engage in these. Uh, it is the conversations that I'm able to facilitate and witness that are some of the most powerful tools in shifting thinking and decision-making. So the space and expertise to manage past hurts that end up in a mediation room and a green light to be able to do this. For example, the grief and loss process, we touched on this a little bit earlier, in itself alone is a huge um, component and it does need time. That's right. I know we've, we've talked about this before, but I think perhaps part of the difficulty seems to be that where there's a recourse to the law, it can often cut short the uh, capacity or ability or willingness of parents to negotiate because they they want to sort of get a, um, the law or the courts or the family court to make decisions mm. somehow on their behalf and then mm. that leads into all sorts of issues it, it takes the everything you've talked about which is the recognition of the developmental needs of the child uh, dealing with um, hurt dealing with um, pain and and grief and everything else it sort of takes it all into a legal framework um, where, where it becomes black and white or right and wrong. And I am not convinced that that's the best place, you know, um, and, and I wonder whether, I don't know if there's ever a way for, the, for things to change in that respect. Mm. I, I understand in other countries, I think in Holland, it's very unusual for the law to be involved quite as quickly. Mm. I think they have these mediation, I think lawyers may be involved 
in round what they call round table discussion. Yes, yes. Where everyone is sitting together and talking these things through, and then maybe the the, the lawyer may say, well, these are some of the legal uh, options, you know. But but the, the, if you go down this road, then these will be the consequences of those mm -hmm. options. Mm -hmm. So people, you know, rather than someone having what they call their day in court, you know, it's it, things are taken, things are are diffused in a different sort of way. Mm, mm. Um, and and so I suppose that's that's one of the concerns that I tend to have. Yes, and, and generally um, just reflecting on hearing you talk um, and I'm reflecting on the two decades of work that I've done in this area, and I do feel that there is some shift from that concept of having a day in court. Predominantly the highest percentage of clients that I would see are not wanting that, whereas, say, 15 years ago, I might have heard more of that, which I think is a positive a positive move. Um, a lot of clients will only go to that place generally if they really have to and if they feel they've exhausted all their avenues. Sure, there are a, a small percentage or a smaller percentage that come in with court as you know I want my certificate because I'm going to court no matter what that does still exist but I do get the general impression that that it's not as strong uh, it is a costly exercise it is a really Enormous. timely exercise and and people in the community do talk about their experiences and and so I generally think that, that there's been a little bit of a shift um, in that respect which is pleasing yes that's very good to hear um, and just thinking a bit about the research in this field, and that I think one of the findings, do, do correct me if I'm wrong, is that generally for children, it's thought that it's not divorce or separation per se that has a negative effect on them, but rather the problem of constant parental conflict and children either being witness to that or becoming drawn into that. Mm. And I, I wonder if you have any um, information about research in this area, mm. whether you would agree with that or perhaps there may be some new findings in this area. Mm. I would certainly agree, um, Ruth, that it is the ongoing unresolved conflict that does have a much more negative effect on children more than the separation itself. So it comes back to how mum and dad manage um, everything that's happening for them in their adult world. And I often talk to parents and, and give them a real picture of even though they may have made an agreement on the day, they will hit road bumps because life brings road bumps. And it's about how they manage moving over that road bump that will make the biggest difference to their child. So, yes, I do agree with that. Um, this is where Professor Jen Jennifer McIntosh has a lot of her research as well. And she's, yes, constantly involved in the research. So that would be a good place to start on any new yes. findings. Yes. Um, but look, Ruth, we know as humans, we manage in life to deal with setbacks, hurts and pain. And thinking about the Holmes and Ray stress scale that I have written a whole chapter about in my published memoir, it is a well-researched fact that ongoing and unresolved stress places a tremendous strain on the human body. Um, I feel privileged to be working with separated families and to be in a position to ask them how they would want their children to be talking about 
how they manage their separation when they become adults and speaking with parents about how mum and dad's amicable parental relationship can prevent their child from seeping out into the big bad world and keep them from engaging in you know, drugs, alcohol, criminal activities um, can really be a catalyst for change. Um, and developmentally, also the mental health considerations for a child is something that parents are generally very interested in. It may be manifesting in problems at school and parents are definitely interested when, you know, when something is wrong and something is going wrong at school. Yes. So that's, I, I mean, I would totally agree with that. And, and thank you for reminding us that um, uh, about Jennifer McIntosh's research. And then finally, I know this may be a hard question, and it may be that you're asked this a lot, but I wonder if you'd be able to give professionals and parents who are listening, say three pointers about what children and adolescents need for their own positive development when their parents are going through divorce or separation. Mm. Well, Ruth, if it's okay, I would like to keep these pointers simple. And, sure. and for want of a better term, from the mouth of babes, most children tell me that they just want their mum and dad to stop arguing. The concept also of a business relationship may be useful rather than thinking of the other parent as a partner or an ex-partner. Both parents have this job for a long time, as long as everyone involved is alive. They are needed and expected to be parents forever. So allowing children to be children is another one, Ruth. It is so difficult for a child or an adolescent to feel that they need to choose between two people that they love the most in the whole world. So it's just the simple, keeping it simple really would be um, the best pointers that, that I could give. Yes. And you, you mentioned um, a changing to a business relationship. Can you say a bit more about that? Um, yes, because mostly when a separation occurs and there's a lot of emotion involved and as humans we tend to slip back into that space of what went wrong perhaps um, and the blame game and shifting, um, I guess, the thinking of parents onto, well, is this how you would speak to somebody in your workplace that you were having a phone call with? And, and the answer is usually no. Um, so if you're thinking of the other parent as the other parent of your child and not a next partner, would that change the way that you speak to them? Sometimes I still get, sometimes I get a, a, a no still, but mostly I get a yes, which is good. Um, and interestingly, Ruth, during um, last year, we've all experienced the differences that has been brought about from the COVID-19 lockdowns that we've, we've all had to endure. And just changing the model of the work that we do, and I've had some experience now with phone mediations, conference calling with parents, and surprisingly, um, it's taken me by surprise that there's been some really positive results come out of that. And I've put that down to 
the two parents who were used to speaking on the phone and yelling at each other and hanging up on each other have now had a third party listening in and being involved in that conversation and they're starting to adjust the way that they speak to each other and learn a new way of speaking to each other. So I guess that that brings me back to that business relationship. So they're, they're able to experience a different a different model of talking to each other that is, is actually shifting some of those cases in a positive, positive way. Well, that's really fascinating. You know, it's amazing how, um, in a way, we're saying technology, you know, has helped mm. um, and in a surprising way. So I'm very heartened to hear that. And, and I think it's a very interesting co concept, the idea of the business relationship. And I think that's very interesting. So, Joe, thank you so much for all your wisdom and very important um, communication about this very difficult subject uh, and i'm sure it's going to be of great interest to to the listeners thank you so much i hope so and thank you very much ruth for the opportunity hello this is dr ruth schmidt nevin again i hope you enjoyed the podcast you may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings i have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.